You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Andre, we started something new with this podcast. Now, what's that, Michael? Well, um, for the sake of social distancing with our interviewees, and because uh, somebody reached out to me and said, hey, can we do this in the same room? It's a lot easier. We started a little series called Garage Talk. Yeah, I don't know if we're actually going to be labeling it Garage Talk, but it's very reminiscent of like the Seattle grunge scene in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. I think every great rock band started in a in a garage. So I guess, unfortunately, that makes you a bit of a rock star, Michael. That's right. That's right, baby. So we've anyway, blown... uh, today we've... we have a really gar- a great first Garage Talk, and um, it's with uh, Dave Johnson of Featherstone. It was supposed to be with Louise, but guess what? And I think we're blowing the dust off the, the Legacy series. And I, I think I think after 20 years in the business, Featherstone could be considered part of the Legacy series. So let's roll the tape. You'll never guess who I got here in my garage. Um, well, when we were chatting earlier today, we were supposed to have Louise from Featherstone. Is she there? She looks different. <laughs> I, I know that laugh. That is the she laugh. She looks really different. <laughs> that is the uh, laugh. We have uh, the uh, 2019 Ontario Wine Awards uh, Winemaker of the Year, and I think it carries over. I just believe. <laughs> we're going to milk it for all it's worth. That's why I, that's why I thought we weren't going to have them at first, because I was like, well, the king cannot actually come out of his, uh, or else they can dethrone him. So, or something, so something I, of that nature. Something of that nature. I, I think we're branding this podcast one of the, the legacy series because I do want to get into like the backstory of Featherstone. But before we get into some of the storytelling, the audio quality is a little off than what we've normally been doing during the pandemic. We've been fortunate enough to get really good audio quality thanks to Zoom and thanks to Skype. But you and Dave are socially distanced in your garage yep. with a laptop. With, with the big door open, so we had lots of air... You know, like an air conditioner going through. With a laptop sandwich between you guys. So um, that's that's what's going on. We are we are making sure that we are setting a good example, which is not something Michael is uh, very used to. No, but... I'm not apt to do that in any way, shape, or form. But speaking of a good example, uh, I just poured Dave something that you don't have, Andre. Because oh, that's usual. Th- that's the kind of dickhead move that I pull off when uh, when you're not around. And uh, Louise and I, when we were talking, uh, decided to uh, to pull out some old stuff. So this one is uh, is a uh, is something old. Let's see if Dave can, can pick out his own work. Obviously, it is your work. How old? That, you're well, not going to tell me. That's the question. I see. <laughs> what is it, and and how well, old is it? I hope it's old. Um, color wise, um, it's it's uh, it's an older wine. <laughs> um, what is this? Not 2019, so it'll be maybe more than 10 years old. He goes going more than 10. More than 10. Oh, give me an 11, 2011. Oh wow. Okay. So it's a 2011 Black Sheep Riesling. Oh wow. I imagine that's probably aged uh, pretty pretty well. I know when we've done our tasted again Riesling tastings, which are always a gong show because uh, some are. Good, are most th- are not, but uh, I mean, the stuff that's under screw cap tends to age pretty well. I know we've had some really great old black sheep Riesling on tastings and some really great uh, fielding. I think fielding Riesling is the last one that stands out. 
Anyways. Yeah, so maybe maybe we'll have Dave talk about the 11 vintage really quickly, and then we can start peppering him with questions. That sounds great. Let's do that. In, in 11, as I recall, if memory serves me correctly, and it usually doesn't, uh, 11 was a pretty cool year. It should have been a great Riesling year, though. Um, I'm a little disappointed in this wine. Um, it's not so much aged as it's oxidized. Um, a little bit. I, I, I got the I got the okay. petrol definitely, and it's yeah, it seems like it's it's sweeter and lost that acidity that, uh, yeah. that it should have. Yeah, and the color is um, pretty dark. I mean, it's, it's looks like Chardonnay, which is what our topic is, I think. But <laughs> I'm actually I've been banned from talking about Chardonnay for any extended period uh, at the risk of Michael driving to Toronto and beating me to death with every bottle of Chardonnay in my collection. I think I, think I said beating the shit out of him, but I suddenly like his idea better. <laughs> That's a tough way to go. Those bottles will hurt. You know what? Let, let, me, let me kick off the, 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 the first question then, now that you've talked about your, your own wine and how you're not terribly happy with it. But uh, you just had, was it? I believe it was the 20th anniversary of Featherstone, right? That's right. Why did you get started? <laughs> we ask ourselves that every day. Um, well, we had um, a little butcher shop, a little butcher business in Guelph. Louise and I, you know, just as the earth was cooling, we were um, at the University of Guelph in 84. We met there and loved the city, loved each other. Uh, loved the city of Guelph. I don't know if you guys know Guelph. Your listeners would certainly, some would. Um, sensational city, great university town, you know, in that, in that sense. It's um, as, a, as a very strong agricultural component, so you've got farm kids attending it, so you're already, <laughs> sorry, Western, you're already up a notch. Hey, <laughs> shut up! So, oh, I'm <laughs> Western. Oh, really? Oh, a, oh he's fucking so He's going to be outside the garage very shortly. <laughs> That's, uh, that doesn't surprise. Anyway, um, but, you know, it's a great town, and uh, we love the city. Stayed there, opened a little uh, butcher shop, a uh, little food store that we opened. Um, ran that for 20 years. Got into, that's the thing, it's a slippery slope. Once you get into food, you get into wine. And, you know, if we could have sold wine in our little meat store, a little butcher shop, we wouldn't have gotten in the wine business. Um, we, I mean, they're, they're, they're inextricably linked, you know, like they are in Europe. Uh, it's, you know, Europeans would uh, would make fun of us the way we treat and separate food and wine. I mean, it's just a, it's an atrocious thing to do in the first place. That when they're they're not meant to be separated, you know. Uh, anyway, um, we sold. It was a poultry store. How long have we got on? Uh, it was a poultry store. So we sold exclusively poultry. So it was a butcher shop with exclusively poultry, right? And um, one of the things we've sold uh, the most of were, were fresh turkeys at Thanksgiving and Christmas. And what was happening was we would get a phone call, uh, usually about two weeks before Thanksgiving, from usually a frantic female, I might add. And she would say, well, uh, we're hosting Thanksgiving this year. My mother-in-law, my in-laws are coming. And I've never cooked a turkey before, and she's in panic mode, and we would say, it's okay, it's okay. we walk her, take her, pull her back from the ledge and say, well, how many are you feeding? And she'd say, oh, 12. Uh, how many are children? Oh, uh, four. Okay, well, we'll have you the appropriate size fresh turkey for that to feed those many people. 
And then we would say, uh, what about stuffing? And she would say, oh, yeah, I make terrible stuffing. Well, we make an apple almond stuffing. She's like, yeah, give me enough for whatever that many people. Okay. Hold on a second. That sounds good, this apple almond uh, stuffing. Do you still make it? No. Oh. No, we still got the recipe. You just don't make uh, it. But we don't make We have it for our own Thanksgiving. We'll oh. have you guys over. All right. Oh, there you sounds go. good. We to just me. got an invite to Thanksgiving, Andre. Man, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm. That's what I was kind of angling for. Really I am obsessed with. Yes. I am obsessed with turkey. I mean, this is something I don't know if we've ever really talked about it on the on the podcast, but um, I usually I am cook going somewhere with this. Just bear with me. So yeah, I cook so like seven the, turkeys a year. The next thing was cranberry relish. Oh wait, Andre's got something to say about turkey. Okay, sorry. Hold on. Wait, wait. Yeah, I was just saying. I was just saying. I cook like seven turkeys a year. Do you? You like turkey then? Yeah, I've got a turkey in the freezer right now that I'm actually thinking about cooking this weekend. Just, just because. I, I, I'm surprised you cook your family that way. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Michael. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm, um, yeah. Um, and I know, and it's a great point. I don't want to talk about turkey for too long, but it is a great, um, it's a great meat. Um, that it's well-priced. It's good value. I don't know why we don't, as you do, <laughs> why we don't eat turkey once a month. I mean, it's, it's not just, as I say, not just for Christmas anymore, you know? It's it's such a like it's a blank canvas to cook with. The thing is, you know, I, I think most Canadians only have one way of cooking turkey and when you get out yes. of that, that shell, like have some people over and if you do I call it just because turkey I've done turkeys on the smokers, I've done turkeys Cajun style, and you can really get creative with it. Granted, yep. it is a big it is a big thing. If you screw up even a ten pound turkey for like six, seven people, I mean it's it's tough at, at, at Christmas or at, at Thanksgiving when you don't have a backup plan. Worst case scenario for me, we order pizza, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Um, anyway, so turkey, uh, the other thing that the question would be, well, what about uh, cranberry relish? And she would say, well, I usually have mine out of a can, you know, that uh, slop that comes out of a can. <laughs> and it's like, well, we make um, a cranberry relish. Um, it's got brandy and a couple other things in it. And she'd say, yeah, I'll take that. And then, the, of course, the one I'm getting to, which was the white wine gravy. And she would say, well, uh, gravy, uh, my gravy is always lumpy. Um, uh, yeah, I'll take the gravy. So the gravy had white wine in it. And um, we were buying the, Louise would said to me, you know, eventually she said, look, at, we, we, were, we would make, I don't know, 50 or 60 gallons wow. of gravy and portion it out. We made... Of course, the profit on the turkey was on the gravy, the stuffing, and the relish. Not so much the bloody turkey, right? Uh, we, the money was in the, on the on those add-ons. On the, on the, the profit. On the accessories. On the accessories. On the on the on the add-ons. Anyway, uh, Louise said, "Look at um, the most expensive component of this uh, gravy is the white wine portion. <laughs> um, can you not make this somewhere? I, you know how tricky <laughs> how tricky is that, right?" And at that time, this is the late, um, yeah, late 80s, we had the Peterson government. I don't know, I lose my governments in there. Anyway, and they allowed at the time for uh, brew your own started to yeah. open, right? And where you could go in and you were supposed to pitch your own yeast. You weren't supposed to make it yourself. You were supposed to make it yourself, right? And then you went in and bottled it. Uh, and, and so those were, there was a, one of these places right beside us in our plaza. We were a little strip plaza in Guelph. And I went in there and I said to the woman, so how does this work? And uh, as it turns out, it was um, Kathy and David Burr, which you guys don't remember. But they started Angel's Gate. They bought that property when it was a mink farm. <laughs> 
And unbeknownst um, to me at the time, anyway, I go in there and I said, how does this work? And the woman says, well, we take um, juice. It could be any kind of juice. It could be carrot juice, but we use grape juice. <laughs> we add what appears to be a dead, dry powder, what it's very much alive, called yeast. We pitch that on the top. And some crazy chemistry happens. Um, that juice converts completely to another product. We get alcohol and carbon dioxide as a byproduct. And I'm a science guy. I was a, a science kid at school. I knew nothing of this process. And I just was blown away by that action that happened in that pail, how we took a pail of juice uh, and converted it to a wine product. And in three years, we were their largest single customer. Wow. Oh. And um, we that's what got me going into the wine business. We were making it at the time out of a concentrate, and you would add, um, it came out of a can like orange juice. I joined a wine club in Kitchener-Waterloo called the Course Crew Society, and they're still, still around. And they said to me, uh, Dave, I know you make wine out of concentrate, but you know, you've got to get the real thing. Um, you, if you want to really make wine, you need to use real grape juice. And so what we did was we all piled in the car and drove down to a little place called Lely's, Donna Lely, down on, uh, on uh, we all know Donna, Lake Shore. on Lakeshore. And we went in there and um, there was 12 of us. And that year, um, the, our little society, our little club, there's 42 of these clubs in the province, They're, and they make a ton of homemade wine, like a ton of volume. Anyway, there was 12 in our club, and we went in there with our 12 empty pails, and we went up to the same stainless steel tank, and she, it was Donna, and she filled everyone's pail uh, and put a lid on it. We all went home, so that's 12 uh, fermentations. 12 people took those wines those pails of juice to their homes and and did whatever the hell they wanted i mean they just made wine in their garage right and this was in october and in april we had a um a professional come in and uh from niagara uh, a winemaker do you remember two his name? or three i think it was uh furbacher uh, from Walters. Do you remember him? Uh, what was their winery name? Uh, Walters, yeah, Walters, Walters, Walters States, States, right? Actually, they just sold grape juice. That's I just looked them up because, uh, Andre, you were just at Thomas. That's, that's where Thomas Bachelder has the bat cave. Is it that's Walters. right. Yeah, but Walters and Estates was, just, just sold juice. That's all they did. They didn't make right. wine as far as I could tell. They did. They did. Um, what was that guy's name? Furbacher. He had a little place in the plaza there right across the street. Um... Anyway, sorry, I can't think of his first name. Anyway, uh, great guy. Anyway, he would come down and, and we would taste all the wines blind. We all would, actually, and, then, and, and he would, too. And he would grade them all. And of the 12 wines, um, four of them were not great in the sense that, uh, you know, it's like, eesh. Although the people that made them were, loved, very, were very nice people. No, but and, and loved them. Okay. They didn't recognize any issues with the wine at all. They drank huh. it all easily within their season. They did this year in, year out, and had no issues in the least with it. The next, I wasn't one of those. The, <laughs> the next four in the, uh, were okay. They were reasonably made wines. Um, they one, I was one of them. And then the last, or the, the, and the another four of the 12 were, were excellent. Uh, they really stuck out. 
And I remember going to the guy and I said to him, why do you, why does your, because I knew we all used the same juice. So we had 12, honest to God, this is a, another light bulb moment for me. Uh, we had 12 different bloody wines. I mean, they were as different. And I know they came out of the same tank. I saw Donna pouring it. So it was fascinating to see the downstream effect. Um, and that, I guess that's not hard to imagine. But um, anyway, so I would go to the, his name was Gary Franco. And I said to him, how come your Chardonnay is so much better than mine? And he says, well, how did you ferment it? And I said, no, I just left it in the pail. And he says, well. He uses a little fridge where he's changed the temperature, and he was actually doing cool fermentation. Now. He didn't necessarily call it that, that way, but he said, I, I really keep the temperature of the fermentation process low. And then he would add, he's asked me, did you add any oak chips? And I said, oh, no, I, oak chips, what the hell are those, right? And so he uh, he adds five grams of oak chips per liter of wine that he makes. He toasts some on a certain level on his barbecue. I mean, it was really interesting and when you extrapolate that out into the into the commercial world he was exactly doing that he was oak treating cool fermenting his wines and it made a tremendous difference so well um, dave dave there's there's one thing you've talked a lot about the process you've talked about the homemade wine you were making for the the gravy the question i need to know and i'm sure a lot of people who are sitting on the edge of their seat needs to know <laughs> Did it taste good? Did either of those things taste good? I know you're talking about what everyone else has tasted like. Like, give me a give me a tasting note, but also tell me if it like to an objective the, level tastes good. The wines for the gravy um, were 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 fine. I mean, they were stable. <laughs> Like you're just um, you're just making them for gravy, right? It's going they, into they cooking, being, so they just had to be drinkable. They were being made into gravy, so they really just needed. We just needed the alcohol. Um, we needed not even the alcohol, I guess, but we needed the body of the stuff to be, you know, white wine. It was fine. I, I you know, it was not aged. It was, um, you know, thirty days from start to finish, and we were consuming it. So, um, they they were um, not complex. <laughs> Um, they weren't <laughs> oxidized, um, which was really all our accomplishment at the time. Um, no, they were, they were, yeah, to, you know, to pull you back from the edge there, <laughs> uh, they were fine. Um, all right, but so you're, they so could you've certainly this, improve. Let's get you back on track a little bit here. So Thank you. yeah, you've learned how to make wine. You've got some idea here. Where do you, how do you go from butcher shop? Right. And making homemade plonk, right. let's be honest, it's probably as good as it was going to be. That's to hey, let's uh, let's uh, let's go buy a winery and some grapes and start making it a lifetime. Absolutely. So thing. with this fascination I had, and I also saw again, this comes back to these uh, this amateur winemaking club, um, the AWO Amateur Winemakers of Ontario, forty two clubs. Hundreds, thousands of people, I suppose, involved. Um, they would have annual, you know, so the sort of to, to build that up a bit, the winners from our club that Furbacher would push forward, he pushed maybe two or three of them, they would go on to an Ontario competition and uh, they would meet for all the, from all the clubs in the province. And we'd, again, it was all blind and they brought in tons of judges and everything else. So um, my interest was to, what I wanted to do was be able to sell. Uh, juice as Donna was from the bench. She's got Niagara in the lake. I wanted to do the same on the bench with bench juice and to provide what would be defined as a VQ. They couldn't VQA it, obviously. They're not winders. There's a hundred reasons they couldn't VQA it. 
but I wanted to hand them BQAable juice of that quality, and they would take it home and and uh, make wine out of it. And and it's a huge market. Like Hamilton alone, you know, they, there are train cars still happens today train cars of grapes in boxes those little flat wooden boxes that come out of california uh and and they they make a ton of uh, homemade wine you know in the italian communities and in portuguese communities um in hamilton it's it's that market alone um we could never even supply so anyway that my thinking was that we would sell settled clean juice of many varieties riesling chard you know the the the, the usual uh, to uh, amateur winemakers on Ontario. So that's really the intent when we bought that place on on um, Victoria, on Victoria Ave there. Doesn't even remember where he's. Yeah, uh, where the hell was it? <laughs> on there. Um, it was 23 acres. It was a fully planted vineyard when we bought it um, in '99. It had a contract to Andre, so Andre's at the time took all the grapes, which isn't unusual. Um, we removed about half the grapes that were there. Uh, there was Vidal there and Saval and some basket grapes, which we didn't want, and we expanded the vineyard bigger. Um, we put in the Gordstraminer behind the winery. We planted Merlot, planted Sauve Blanc, planted Pinot. How did you know what to plant? Like, it, it doesn't sound like it, it sounds like you're a home winemaker, but. I mean, yeah, to hit all the uh, the big boys, really, we wanted an even planting white and red okay. um, and to be able to fulfill um, what I didn't want to be. And I still don't want to be. And I don't think I am is a one hit wonder in the sense that, oh, you know, he's known for a white. He's known as a white winery or he's known as a rosé producer. He's known as a red wine producer. I think we're I, I, so anyway. We planted a, a, a pretty good cross section of fruit there. Um, we got in some agronomists that said um, that the site was applicable for Merlot, which is our most delicate grape there, which I'm not sure is still true. Uh, uh, but um, it's it, it's certainly of the vineyard of the of the varietals we have. It's certainly the most delicate and has suffered. Devastatingly, in 2013, 2014, for that matter, those two winters. Uh, but um, I, I mean, we wanted the, you know, the the big the big hitters um, that you would make wine out of that I that we could then turn. What we didn't want was, you know, some crazy Nebbiolo or sorry, Moro, uh, any of those kind <laughs> of uh, crazy Italian varieties or or, or, or you know that, that that just didn't have LCBO to be frank, uh, LCBO. Uh, uh, recognizability. I mean, there's the whole world swings on what five whites and five reds. So, so that seems like a good place, Andre, to uh, to pour the first wine for uh, for Dave that he that he uh, provided to us. Yes. Uh, and that is, and I don't want to spend all day on this. All right. It's uh, it's something that Dave does, uh, and and only a handful of winemakers make this kind of wine. It's your Canadian oak. Chardonnay. What made you decide you wanted to work with Canadian oak? If you consider that, I can name one winemaker off the top of my head, Derek Barnett, who's always used Canadian oak. And after that, I'd be stretched to figure out who else is using Canadian. Uh, so, what makes you go, yeah, Canadian oak's the way to go? Yeah, um, certainly, uh, Derek and I, <laughs> we do go way back. And I do remember he they they got in the barrels ahead of us. Um, 
Um, Michael Risk uh, is the fellow that started the whole idea. And um, he thought, well, he's a, a big Chardonnay drinker. And I mean, part of the theory about the location or the, the type of wood that you would put your Chardonnay in, in France at least, the thinking was that the um, juice or the wine would be put in barrels uh, made from trees that grew in the same region that the vines did. They're sharing, um, you know, that terroir, uh, you know, an oak tree, of an oak tree, I suppose. And, you know, the five uh, great forests in France kind of works well with the five um, bigger wine regions in France, and they're using a barrel that would be fairly local. And so Michael's idea, Michael Resk's idea was, well, why don't we do that in Ontario? Let's use, so surely to God we have oaks in Ontario, and we do. Um, it has to be white oak, can't be red oak, but red oak's poisonous, and we need a repeat customer. <clears throat> Uh, so uh, he was able to source uh, some uh, trees along the Grand River, just outside Brantford. His family owns some property there. Um, he was desperate to get the barrels built in Canada to kind of close the loop on the production. Um, as it turns out, can't be done. We don't currently, even currently, we don't go from tree to barrel in this province. We don't, in this country for that matter. I, I guess the Okanagan has a has a builder out there that I've, I've, been, I've heard of. I don't, I can't confirm that. Um, so he was quite disappointed the barrels couldn't be built here. Um, and so they get, they get shipped uh, uh, south of the border. Um, the staves do and the, and the barrels are, are built down there. My understanding is there is a Cooper now in Prince Edward County, I believe. I'm not sure they build it from scratch. I, I, I've heard that also. I know they do recoupering there okay. with existing barrels. Okay. Um, I, 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 I've not been approached by them to purchase their barrels, and I've not seen their barrels. I thought it was in Sterling, Ontario, which is just north of the county. That's that's my understanding because Claus uh, and Chase is actually using Sterling barrels for okay. for their. Uh, I think it's a Chardonnay. Actually, it's lovely. Yeah. That is a nice, uh, Andre, what, what have you got to say about this wine, first of all? I'll let you have your, your two minutes here. Uh, well, the vintage is the 2017 in front of us. I think it's the 2018 that just went through vintages. Um, well, I, I, I don't need to go on 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 about this too, too long. I'm really happy to have this bottle to enjoy right now because I do have several bottles in storage. Um I, I guess the short story is I still think that for $20, this is one of the finest, most ageable Chardonnays uh, on the market. And I've said that I said that well before the 2019 Ontario Wine Awards Winemaker of the Year was on the podcast many times. So, so, so this is last year's model, correct? This is last year's model. Correct. I, I, and you know my thoughts on Chardonnay, Andre. I was not as big a fan of the 18. I thought the 17 was brilliant. Um, so when I tasted this, I'm like, wow, the 18's really come along. And then you said it was the 70, I'm like, well, that'll explain the whole thing to me. The 18 needs, listen, in my opinion, the 18's going to take a bit of time. I'm finding most of the 18's that I'm tasting are a little bit, um, a little bit wood heavy right now, but I don't think that's poor winemaking. I think it's reflective of the, the vintage conditions and in six to 12 months, the 18's are really going to show some restraint. So let's uh, let's now that we've we've talked a little of the Chardonnay. If anybody has the seventeen in their cellar, it's it's brilliant. You've got a, 
I don't think there's any rush to drink it, but I think in the next three years, you're going to be very happy. Uh, after that, I find Ontario Chardonnay to be a crapshoot kind of at the five-year mark. You just never know what you're going to get. Well, the screw, uh, the screw caps, let's, listen, listen, I think the screw caps, um, the screw caps will help them hold on. They, they do, but I'm still, I'm still, I'm still, um, testing them out, Andre. How about that? Okay, fair enough, Michael. So, so Dave, let's bring you back a little bit uh, to the uh, back to the future or back to the past. Let's back back to the past. Sorry, um, you've got the property. You've, um, you've you've got your grapes planted. You're ready to go, and you're supposed to be selling to people who want to make wine. But now you go, you know what? I want to make my own wine. What what's the thought process behind that? And then what makes you go? Let's hang out our own shingle and call it Featherstone. Yeah, for sure. The, um, I mean, the idea, the conceit of having um, selling juice to home winemakers, I don't think was a bad idea. Um, but what we, we didn't appreciate, I guess, was then that really you you have a fairly short sales window. So, so um, you know, we still well, we start harvesting the middle of September, so October, November, December kind of thing. Uh, the juice is available, so. You know, how do you make the mortgage payment in May, June, and July? Um, that was really, really the issue. Um, and 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 we're business people at heart. And I think we always saw we weren't so much making um, wine. You know, as we compare it to the, the you know the, the great apple pie story. You know, there's no money in apples, um, but if you put them in an apple pie, uh, you make good money on your damn pie, right? And, and it's really what we were doing. We were value adding the product we we felt that particular site um was excellent um for a whole bunch of reasons and to be able to isolate a single wine from there and offer that to the market that's you know i mean that's obviously very appealing and um we could then open a little our our um our little house there we we turned it in a little tasting room in the back which we opened in 02 which was the smallest um, tasting room in Niagara at one point. Yeah, it was certainly the smallest winery. Yeah. It is tiny. Until Calamus opened up, and they made, they had the smallest, and then they expanded. I love their tasting room, though. Yeah. That old barn. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was um, that was was really what drove that. Um, it would give us a year-round income. We essentially uh, increase the value of the product. And... Um, and 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 be able to sample that little wee snapshot of that little site. I mean, that's, that's it's really kind of fun, right? Andre, I think you have a question about uh, viticulture that you texted me. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. No, I I guess we we made an edit where I jumped the cart before the horse. So there we go, going behind the scenes. You know, you've talked a bit about learning the the winemaking part of this. But I mean, one of the signatures of Featherstone and one of the the things that made me uh, really fall in love with the the story of Featherstone even before I was writing about wine was how proud you are of your viticultural practices the black sheep in the vineyard that the wine are named for and the uh, red-tailed hawk Louise being a, a falconer like where did you learn your viticultural practices because you don't learn that in home winemaking no no you don't and and, and it's um it, it's interesting just to, to deviate slightly from that we do where we used to we haven't this year but we do uh, vineyard tours all summer, and uh, it is 
fascinating to take people out into that vineyard and just talk about viticulture because the public know nothing. I mean, it, it is um, not that they know much about winemaking necessarily, but they've all been on, uh, you know, how many wine tours, heard the same story about, um, you know, barrel cellars and everything else. But you take them into that vineyard, and they're absolutely stunned. You know, you, you strip some leaves. This is in, say, July or August, for that matter. It doesn't matter. They see the vineyard. They see the, the orientation of the rows, the uh, grafting wood on the bottom of the thing, the pruning that gets done, the leaf removal, the fruit that's hanging there. I mean, they're, they're absolutely gobsmacked. And it's, it's, it's something we need to do better in this province, I think, to, at, at the winery level, obviously. Um, of course, lots of wineries don't have vines there, I suppose, um, to access. But it's it's a real weakness. The, the, the public don't know much about it. And I know retail people don't know much about the vineyards. Yes. And it's um, when I, I did a, a work term in New Zealand in 07, and they, they recognize vineyard people there like we do winemakers here. Uh, they they would be able to name three or four, you know, kind of on a rock star level. And these are people that sit on tractors all day, right? But as everybody knows, and we, we keep telling everybody that, you know, the wine's made in the vineyard. And I, I don't know why there's not more. And I, I suppose it's just a maturity level in, in our industry, which isn't, we're not very much, we're, you know, we have, how long we've we been doing this, right? I mean, we haven't been doing it much longer than New Zealand has. Well, New Zealand's about the same age as we are. You know, you know I, I actually agree with you com- completely, Dave. And it's um, it's something I've been thinking about for quite a while. And uh, I think, uh, it wasn't going to be me. I think we're starting to see a bit of a, a shift. But I think the, the reason why we have an issue with the disconnection of, of um, connecting the agriculture to what's in the wine is that Toronto is such a big multicultural metropolitan city that the people who are selling the wines in the city of Toronto still aren't giving Ontario its proper due. I will admit that that's starting to change and we are starting to see uh, a lot of higher profile sommeliers happy to represent Ontario. And we're not just talking about the handful of uh, wineries that are on every wine list. We're finally starting to see a little bit of diversity, but there is a real problem with this elite wine culture that exists in restaurants. And, you know, it's great that we have a high end dining scene in toronto but the the culture is is broken in terms of getting the word out about ontario wine with the people who work in restaurants i couldn't and i know we're not I, I, we're not trying to agree with one another but i couldn't agree more when i was great king in 2003 uh part of the shtick is they send you to the okanagan uh, the ontario um uh, grape growers do it's a five thousand dollar trip uh, you and your spouse, and they, they, they send you to the Okanagan, because the Okanagan don't do anything with the Grape King, uh, and they love us. They just, you walk in there, and vineyard, the wineries are, you know, have a sign that says, welcome, Grape King, and all that. <laughs> and I would speak at luncheons there, um, you know, there would be, whatever, there'd be stuff lined up for me to speak to the Grape King. Everybody did this every every visit. And I, I was unique in some sense, in the sense that not only was I a grape king, a grape grower, I also owned a winery. And so I remember sitting in, I don't know how many times I said this, I said, well, I, I, um, my, I farm about uh, 20 minutes outside the, the nearest largest town of St. Catharines. And I farm there, and half the restaurants in St. Catharines don't carry uh, a VQA wine, half of them. And that the audience would... <gasps> 
they would all there would be an, uh, a collective intake because in BC uh, the the support they get locally is Nuts. breathtaking. Yeah. It, it's like you know that it, it is uh, it is really interesting, and then that's why that industry there is growing leaps and bounds ahead of us. I think um, they're still smaller than we are by a lot, but still um, they sell out, sell out, sell out. They've got some really good price points in BC, and and they just get such good local support. Drives me crazy. When I when I was there over ten years ago now, even at that point, they were all about BC one. You could not walk into any restaurant. Uh, and there were people that would say that if you walked into a restaurant in British Columbia and you said, I'd like a BC wine, and they didn't, people would walk out. Oh, wow. Which here, you know, so do we, you have an Ontario wine? No. Oh, then I'll take something Italian. Can you imagine if they did that here? Yeah. Uh, it would turn it around. I, not turn it around. I mean, uh, well, so... I didn't mean to get us. I didn't mean to get us completely, completely off yes. off track here. But I, I do think I, I really appreciate your your insight on insight on. I mean this this is definitely a problem that exists in the industry. Yeah. Well, Andre, let me get us back on track by pouring another wine. Yeah. Yes. And uh, the other one that we have here happens to be uh, the 2017. Uh, Cabernet Franc. Oh, awesome. So one of the things that uh, over the years you have, I, I think, and I, I know here Andre will agree with me, um, that you have that you have been um, known for is this Cabernet Franc because it is probably still one of the best values in the um, in the LCBO because you do have it in the LCBO. It is an essential now. Yep. Um, it's still 20 bucks. Yep. And um, just year after year, vintage after vintage, you seem to nail this wine. And it continues to, to make, you know, people say, you know, what Cap Franc do I get if I want to taste a good Ontario Cap Franc? It'll be between you and Vineland, which are neighbors, basically. Uh, both of you have great uh, prices on these, and they're both great wines. So Well, and it's, it's, it's the other thing, too, where it's not just the quality of the wine. It's it's And I've written about it. In tasting notes I've written about Featherstone in the, in the past is when you walk into the tasting room at, at Featherstone, you don't have this, you know, half of the wine shop set up with these hoity-toity, ultra-premium, $50 wines, like, please buy this and age it in your cellar for 10 years and maybe have it, you know, down the road. You make wines that are meant to be drunk, and they're, they're meant to be drunk, like, shortly after they hit the market, and it's something that when I'm hosting a dinner party, I know that I'm going to be getting something that isn't fussy, doesn't need an, um, an, um, an instruction manual. It's just good wine that's reflective of the industry, and it's a good wine reflective of the variety that's in the bottle. So now that we've stroked your ego, please tell us a little about this wine and, and why did you become, you know, really, you said you didn't want to be known for just one thing. But if you were supposed to be known for something, I think it would be, it would be this Cabernet Franc. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure about this. The ego struggle. I, I, I appreciate. Uh, I mean, a lot. Some you've in, in Andre. You mentioned this a couple times. Was price point, and uh, it is something that we struggle with on a on a daily basis. No, not daily basis, but um, he's really putting some thought into this, Andre. He's taking his glasses <laughs> off. Like, yeah. he's, uh, I, I because it, his head got so big, they wouldn't fit anymore. <laughs> that, why does want? Why does this hurt my ears? Yeah, the hinged springs were just uh, suddenly bu busting at the seams. Um, I, I think it's, um, it, it, yeah, it's 
we've meant to, we've really tried to offer the the wine you know as a part of the dinner experience it, it's still middle class you know? uh, but um, so often wine it gets put up in this pedestal and I don't know why beer doesn't do this beer guys have so much more fun you know they just I'm always envious of those but they just have friggin fun right yeah. wine people don't it's not it's not a fun thing this is it's, it's just constantly a, and if you don't keep the lid on it the prices get through the roof and it as you suggest Andre it comes with a with a pedigree that you have to read and honor the thing and it's absolutely ridiculous it it is I see this wine or any damn wine well, not any wine I mean there are there are heritage wines obviously that are meant to be but this wine is no different than salt and pepper on the table it is meant to amplify whatever the hell you're eating uh, it's not the other way around it's um, an accompaniment to make your food better it's it you know you, you take that bite of food and then you take the wine and the wine does whatever the hell it does and then it wipes the palate so that cream sauce is gone or the oil has gone or the fat has gone or the protein is mostly gone right because of the tannins mm -hmm. and then when you take that bite again of the food you're getting re-hit again you know you get that experience each time right that's that's what it's supposed to do that's really all it is it's um it gets overthought over sorted i mean it's just i we're, we're yeah prices we really struggle, you know. We really try and keep the lid on. I mean, we—that's Louise and I. We are those people. We, we don't, we don't drink twenty dollar um, and up uh, wines every night. Um, they don't even drink their own wine. Yeah, uh -huh. but uh, you know, we're looking for that wine that you can have every night. I don't know—not necessarily ours, but you know what I mean. It's that that it shouldn't bust a bank, and it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be special, I guess, in the sense that uh, you know it's just for Sundays and we're going to splurge. No, no, it's 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 cultural. Anyway, sorry. What what was your question? <laughs> no, this is. I guess what we're getting at is this, oh, the front. This wine is varietally correct. Mm -hmm. and you yes, get it, it every year. Cool mm -hmm. vintage, hot vintage. The okay. tobacco's there. The raspberries there. Like okay. this is now seventeen was the miracle vintage, obviously. So. Yep. We've talked about it often on the on the podcast. Andre probably writes about it a lot. I write about it a lot. Oh, it's, it's one and, of those and that should not have you know turned out like it did. But and thankfully, there's so Mother much Nature good 2017 on the market right now. What was that, Andre? And there's just so much good 2017 on the market right now, and it's just like I was expecting. You know, we were expecting 2017. The winemakers, everyone everyone walked around with a lot of anxiety right until the middle of September. So the quality of the wines from 2017 across the board are really just, it's fun to open them. Yeah, they're, they're dynamite. But but so we're here at your 17. That's your current vintage, correct? Um, so varietally correct. But I would say that uh, besides Black Sheep Riesling, which I, I think, you know, you guys really... Put a signature on that one, yeah. And it's because of the of the sheep. You were the first few sheep in the province, as far as I could find out. Um, but your next wine, I would think, would be the Cab Franc. Yep. And is it is it a love for Cabernet Franc that you have, or is it just a, it's a cash cow? Yeah, it ain't a cash cow. Uh, and un, you know, not like Riesling. You know, Riesling um, Riesling is in and out the door. Uh, we're bottling that February first. Uh, it came in October 1st, so uh, the turnaround is tight, which is what we want. Uh, we're full screw cap, everything else, right? I mean, Riesling, 
we hand pick it so our yields aren't as great as it could be and we underpress it. But anyway, um, the franc um, is that great, uh, I think, anyway, that we can say um, is Ontarian. Yeah. Right? Like, I, I would say who, sure. who the hell's ever heard of that? Like, that yeah. Chardonnay we tasted, I, I, I think that's. Uh, that's going to the, that that seventeen is going towards Californian. You know, it's got that. Uh, you know, you you certainly know it's oaked. You know, it's Chardonnay from a mile away. Um, it's it's look at me kind of thing. You know, Riesling. We're we're, we're trying to make a German style, Mosel style all day long. That's the you know our alcohols are slightly larger or higher maybe. Um, so Blanc, we're trying to make uh, New Zealand, um, but. Franc, um, I think, is something that we can really own. Like we've—it's our most planted uh, red vinifero that that's in the province, not just us. Um, we have more reasoning actually, um, but it's the most. Uh, it, it winters well. Um, every winery not makes a couple. <laughs> no, not in Florida. <laughs> uh, here I'm at. Uh, it. It. Um, it. It's it's a uh, it it's bulletproof. I mean, um, we're certainly learning. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, and I still hear this. You know, I still get the odd critic that has something smart to say about, oh, you know, the how come it's so bell peppery? You know, and it's like, have you drank a, an Ontario Riesling in a uh, sorry, an, an Ontario Franc in the last 10 years? I mean, they're yeah, the you bell str struggle to find one. Yeah, uh, the bell pepper is is definitely gone. I remember in 2002. Bell pepper was all over the place um, and and going uh, a little bit forward, but I, I think in the last 10, 12 years, we've really got rid of that uh, that green bell pepper, and we're starting to show the the more tobacco notes, the cigar box, well, and the even raspberry. I don't know. The, it, it, it's the, the other thing. It's the other thing about the climate, though. Is is I don't mind a little bit of bell pepper in my Cabernet Franc. I think we still find it. From winery to winery, depending to on the vintage. But, no, but hey, Michael, do you drink a lot of a, a lot of Loire wines? If you open up a, a Chinon or a Bourguet, like there's a good chance, depending on the vintage, depending on the producer, you're going to get some bell pepper in there. It's it's That's varietally correct. Yeah, or Ladybug. Yeah. I mean, from I mean, from France. There, there's yeah. you know they have Ladybug issues there, which is we don't own it anyway. Um, no, I, I agree, uh, but you know the. the we still reference it, I guess, as pepper, just not necessarily bell pepper. You know, we think of it as um, uh, peppercorn, or you know, more of a more of a spicy sage to it than than <laughs> that. There's that pyrethrin, right? That green character. It's yeah, long gone. I think I think I think our and, winemakers are learning to to deal with it a little bit a little bit better. That's true, but. Uh, when again, when I was in New Zealand in 07, and I, I was looking at these vineyards, and they looked really odd. And I said, "What's wrong with these vineyards?" And he said, "Well, <laughs> down there they can um, um, a green graft, so <laughs> they, they've got a vineyard that's I don't know 10, 15 years old, not performing well. They'll go through there and cut off the the vine about two feet above the ground, and and open it up and stick in whatever they want to switch it to." <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, which is pretty funny. And I was looking at it, it just looked odd to me. And he says, yeah, no, that used to be Cap Franc. But he said, our Cap Franc sucked because it was all this green pepper thing. And we've lost, you know, they've switched to X, Y, and Z on, on these, uh, mostly Pinot. Um, but I was really interested, and I had taken some Franc with me, and they are like, we can't make Franc like this. And this is New Zealand, um, which I found quite encouraging. 
Um, it was I don't know. So I don't think in Hawks, don't, Hawks Bay don't you could need probably a lot do of it. heat. Yeah. yeah, well, I was in Hawks, Hawks Bay. Bay probably, but I, I don't think anywhere else in New Zealand could do it. They cut it out. Yeah, I see. You know. That. Um, but yeah, yeah, so yeah, just stroke you a little longer. It's uh, uh, it, it's it's a great cab franc and and Andre. I think the only other um, the only other thing you would probably want to talk about, and um, I should I'll get mine in before I, I give you the lead. Is you really learned a lot when you were in New Zealand because your so blanc went just like nuts after you came back, and you said 07 is when you went to to New Zealand. Like you must have learned a lot from them in New Zealand because your so blanc went like, like just just did a, a total 180, and and completely turned around, and is now probably you know year after year one of the top so blancs in the province because it's you know really fun drinkable, and the 19 is is I think you're at the top of your game in the 19. Yeah, it's not incredible. Yeah, yeah. And 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 it's funny again. I don't, I'm surprised I've referenced. Um, I don't more, but Andre dropped my bottle, so that's okay. Uh-huh. But you're not bitter. No, not uh, at all. Um, it's funny that, but again, I forgot about that. Of course, that's why I went right. Is for uh, to to figure out how come they're so blunt. And the I was worked at Cellini uh, in Hawks Bay there, and and they deliver their grapes there in uh, dump trucks, and they're not dump trucks like we have them. They're stainless steel body dump truck, and they would just. That's how they truck them. We use uh, picking bins and and five ton, four ton uh, bins, steel bins. Anyway, this truck backed into the weigh scale, and my job was to open the gate at the bottom, and the guy would tip it, and the fruit would come out of there and pour down into the weigh scale, this pit uh, that was also a stainless steel thing, and it weighed the thing. And I remember the fruit flying out of the, just come pouring out of this, out of the back of this truck. And doing the kind of the Hawaii Five-O wave as it hit the bottom, it would curl and come around. And the aroma would hit you, and I, I was a little bit teary because I'm like, they've already beat us. It's, if I get it. You know, they, we can't get fruit out of the field that's got this much asparagus in it, that's got this much, you know, that that green character to it. It's just, just intense, intense, intense. They're trying to squash it down, you know, yeah. and we're trying to pick it out, right? But to some degree. Uh, anyway, so that said, um, we they use a ton of oak also, a ton of oak during the fermentation period, and we've really taken on a lot of that in our in our soap long, just in that during fermentation. So all fermentation, twenty uh, percent of the fermentation happens in old barrels uh, on our soap, and it really uh, elevates that tropical character in the nose. It's really really fascinating. Yeah, the 19 is fantastic. So, Andre, I'm going to turn it on over to you because I know you want to bring a little joy into your life. I do want to bring a little joy in my life. Uh, I, I've, I've said it before. I've said it many times. But uh, and this is not just about stroking egos. You can go to andrewinereview.ca and see that I've said all these words before. But joy is one of the most underrated uh, sparkling wines in the province. I, I don't know if it's because of the crown cap or whatever, but it's it's something that everyone should be drinking and enjoying and in my opinion as a benchmark what made you decide to get into sparkling and uh yeah i guess i'll I'll wait i'll wait for my follow-up question what made you decide to get into sparkling let's go with that so louise says to me there's a theme here right she says (laughs) if i drink one more bottle of Catherine, i'm going to kill them can we not make this honestly we were drinking Catherine by the case and it's like ah um 
And I'm sure the spec boys would love to hear that. Although it seems they lost a good customer. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, they need another one. Um, <laughs> let's not make fun of Henry Pelham because it's, it's just too easy. No. Um, the, yeah, we had Kevin Penagapka was working for us too at the time. Uh, tremendous um, talent, certainly towards sparkling. And he took on the project uh, with us, you know, once we had the ideas. And the that first year was 08, was it? Andrew, you probably know better. Only you can tell us. Yeah, uh, yeah I think it was 08. I, I had 09. Um, Michael had me open my 09 this year because he's like, oh, there's no way it'll still be still be good. And I was wrong. Really? So now I'm holding, I'm holding, I have 10, 11, 12, 13. And I'm going to be holding those for significantly longer before opening. See, I think them. the ten and the twelve are, are are the ones you probably should be drinking early because of the hot year. See, I'm not or listening the, the to you anymore. And the 13, I'm not listening to you anymore. Indefinitely, almost. I am not listening to you on this anymore because you were so wrong about <laughs> the O nine. Now you will be the sad one. I will. <laughs> um, good thing you guys aren't here. Um, <laughs> so and and Andre, I, I know and I know your support or that's not your support i know you you honestly love this wine and uh, wow who wouldn't uh, lots do but i think it's mostly due and and, and you, we mentioned uh thomas at the bath cave that's hilarious uh thomas botchell i remember he tasting it and he's like you know <clears throat> this is this is really good um do you think i he felt and he got me going on this it was his idea he thinks that there's interplanted muscay in our Chardonnay block. And the Chardonnay block went in in 88, and back then it, 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 was a, it wasn't separated from Chardonnay, it's a clone from Chardonnay. And they were, you know, he thinks that there's an, and, and because it has that lifted floral character to it, to the, it to the and I think it's that, just that hint of muscat that's interplanted in the vineyard. That's my, that's my story. Still, still a theory, and I mean, it, it's always got a really nice, like, the, the mineral backbone that you expect from really great Ontario Chardonnay, and your your fruit po profile is never just uh, citrus. It always has a little bit of orchard fruit mingled into it. Um, I, I mean, it's it's just a really solid bottle of Blonde de Blanc sparkling wine from Ontario. We and, and, and when, I remember when we were making it, we, it was a case of... I mean, it's our most expensive wine. It's $35 a bottle. And I remember at the time going, let's pull the stops on this. I don't care. Um, we're in no rush. It is that rare wine in our portfolio, to be honest, where we don't we don't rush it. We don't, um, we don't really care. We don't make much of it either, which helps, so it's not killing us uh, uh, inventory-wise. Um, and we give it minimum three years on the lease. And it really, really makes a difference. You know, it, it's, yeah, no, I'm pretty pleased with it. What's taking 2014 so long from being released? We're waiting for the 13 to sell. All right. I guess I got some and more work to is, do. It's delicious. So. 13 is, uh, it'll be a tough beat. I think that's our, in my opinion, it's our best of the, of the bloody fly, although I don't. I believe so, too. <laughs> Uh, Andre, I uh, before we wrap this thing up, I've got uh, one more uh, for today. We started with uh, with something old. Uh, we're going to end with something old. Oh wow! Um, and it kind of comes back oh, wow. to something you were uh, you were talking about, uh, uh, Andre. And I think Dave agreed with you. So 
We're about to find out uh, whether you were both right or uh, or wrong. So, uh, Dave, you want to want to? Dave's going to play wine writer and see if one if he likes this wine, <laughs> and then and then two if he can guess the uh, guess the vintage. You know, it's got that um, molasses. Um... Molasses. Okay, so you didn't open Old Sparkling. <laughs> no, we did not. No. I will oh, tell. Wow. It's red. It's red. Oh wow! Honestly, I'm gonna say that's a really good vintage. I'm gonna say that's either a 12 or 15. Um, let's go 12. You think it's a 2012 what? Oh shoot! <laughs> I got Franck in the brain. Oh, that makes sense. This is Onyx. All right. So he's picked uh, 2012 Onyx. No, not 12. 15. No. No. It's older. 10. Did we get 10? It's a 10 Onyx? Yeah. Okay, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat now. You like it? Is it good? I love it. Okay. So we were all talking about the Cabernet Franc, and I just I threw that that wrench in there for you because mm. I said, "What grape is it?" And that's supposed to mess you up a little right, bit. Right, it did. Because yeah, it is a Franc. Is it, it? It is a 2010 though. Yay! That's a that's the 2010 uh, Cab Franc. Holy cow! And Andre, uh, we were talking about how uh, they don't make wines to age; they're meant to put on the table and drink. But if you're one of the idiots like me who just loses things in the cellar, kind of on purpose and. Uh, Andre, this is it's it's really good trunk. You know what? I, I guess I guess the addendum to what I said was, they don't need to age, but they can. I, I have my old my old collection of um, of joy, and as I've said, um, I'm now buying so much of the Canadian Oak Chardonnay because I'm afraid of missing it. That I've got a collection of that building up too. And you should too. Everyone should. Everyone should. Everyone. Well, Dave, we'd like to thank you for uh, being here in the garage. Andre, we're sorry you missed a couple of wines. I pulled another uh, Don Zeraldo on you, I guess. And uh, you know what? I'm just honestly pleased to get this story on tape. Um, I, I Before just... they, they go back to um, uh, butchering or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that. No, it's it's um, it's a pleasure. I mean, it's... Um... Being the, the winemaker of the year, too. Um, oh, it's got to come back to that, too. Yeah, and that award, too, is it's literally, you know, as they say, it's recognition by your peers, you know, and that's as big a compliment as, as it gets. I, I'm, I'm just uh, honestly thrilled. Uh, I'm over the moon with that. So. He's, th he's thrilled to be, uh, be going into his uh, second year of his reign. <laughs> It's, it's like Donald Trump not wanting to give up the presidency, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have to go there. Dave is, is not going to give up Winemaker of the Year lightly or easily. All right. Well, this is as good a place as any to cut the tape. So I am hitting the cut the tape button right now. We definitely have to get Dave back. It'd be great to get Dave and Louise together just to talk some more about Featherstone's story and what's going on there. Um, man, I could have... Like I, I didn't know so much of that backstory of Featherstone. My mind is still a little bit blown. I'm a little overwhelmed. Well, the interesting part was that it was supposed to be Louise, and about an hour before, she got in touch and she said, nope, you're getting Dave. And I'm thinking, well, you both could show up if you wanted to. And I think um, 
I'm I am pretty sure that uh, she wanted some time alone. The I'm, I think it's really great that we got the current reigning 2019 uh, Ontario Wine Awards Winemaker of the Year. Uh, yeah, and two years in a row. First time somebody has won twice in a row. <laughs> well, he didn't win a second time. He just oh, oh. there was just no one else to take his crown from him this year. So I, I guess he is two years in a row, and he just doesn't know it. Oh, wait a second, he knows it. Thank you for taking a moment to listen to this podcast. You can check us out on Patreon. It does not cost us a lot to keep the podcast going, but we do have a few expenses. So every dollar, two dollar, three dollar contribution we get, we really appreciate it. Uh, I'm Andre Pru from AndreWineReview.ca and on social media at Andre Wine Review. And I'm Michael Pincus of MichaelPincusWineReview.com on social media, usually as the grape guy. But if you check out my name, I'm showing up everywhere. Whether you like it or not. Take it away, Michael. That- that is that is probably true. Of course, we have Patreon. I hope you people are uh, at least going to check it out because by uh, by mid mid September, early October, we're going to have some new incentives. We'll let you know what they are. Good night. Yeah, yeah. What he said. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes.